Welcome back to another episode of the Ecumen. This week, with Brian and Pete here in studio, we are going to talk about the Catholic Church. So this is Lesson 11 of the Baltimore Catechism. And before we get kicked off here, talking about the church and what it means in terms of what the Catholic Church is, how we define the body itself, let's remind everyone, please subscribe to us on YouTube and uh, follow us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud. Make sure to send us emails or give us comments. We're going to make sure that, as always, with the rest of the lessons that we've done in the description section, you'll see all the questions as well as links to a bunch of the topics we talk about so you can follow along with the sources we used to give you this uh, content. So uh, going into the questions here, 136 being the next question in the uh, catechism, what is the church? The church is the congregation of all baptized persons united in the same true faith, the same sacrifice, and the same sacraments under the authority of the sovereign pontiff and the bishops in communion with him. This one's great. Yeah, you can see the <laughs> excitement in Pete's face right now. <laughs> So us here, being two converts, talking about the nature of the Catholic Church, coming out of Protestantism, where we don't have sacraments, we don't have a sacrifice, we don't even have authority (laughs) under anyone, so there's no way we can even abide by any of the obeying prelates talk that Paul has given. And then looking at it, uh, as well as the bishops, in terms of bishops in communion with that supreme head, that chair of St. Peter, like a whole bunch of this set of details, these facts, these just, this is historical. I mean, I don't, I don't know what people want here who are going to try to argue against it. I, I would just say for the, the Protestants that are listening or those that are discerning the, the Catholic faith through a Protestant lens, just go back in your brain, in your experiences with the quote-unquote church you're most familiar with or spent time with, and start applying it universally. Start thinking in a bigger picture uh, as a united people, a united church, if you will, you know, through time and space for all men in all places. And see if, it, if that litmus test um, works for your local situation. Uh, I know as a Protestant, if I didn't really... If I didn't really like the people or the atmosphere, or I didn't really like uh, the pastor or the, you know, whatever. How you felt when you How went, I heard felt, a sermon? I can just go down the street. Like, I guess I'm a Methodist now. I guess I'm Baptist. I'm guessing, like, it It, it becomes a, a ridiculous routine uh, as an adult person that's, that's trying to seek truth. So we, I just challenge you to kind of look at it from that that viewpoint and uh, and start to see hopefully some some of the cracks yeah, because when we look at Numbers twenty three nineteen, we read that God does not contradict himself. When we read Titus, I believe it's Titus 1, 2, if I remember correctly, we know that God doesn't lie. And honestly, in John 14, 6, it makes sense because Jesus says, I am the truth. The truth can't lie. The truth can't contradict itself. Therefore, when Jesus would make a statement like he makes in Matthew 18, 17, and says, turn to the church, if everything else fails, and you start to go astray, or you're worried about going astray, and you want to be in union with me, go to the church for correction. It can't be 47,000 competing flavors all arguing over which, whether or not you can baptize kids, whether or not the communion is actually his body, blood, soul, and divinity, whether or not you can have female pastors, whether or not you can actually support abortion or support gay marriage. And then all these people contradicting and saying, no, 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 you can do this. No, no, you can't do that. Um, Let alone without any sacrifice whatsoever. Well, it's already done. I mean, there's, there's no outside of time and space. So they're basically taking God and naturalizing everything that happened on the cross, all the divinity, they're saying it's so divine it's natural or something that's totally nonsensical. So there is no sacrifice. So Malachi 1.11 no longer applies, apparently, in their realm. So all these different pieces of scripture, like when you start putting them all together, there's only one solution here. Only one fold, John 10.16, that you can have with all these appointed prelates to do the things that need to be done so that we can all share in this experience and be part of this church. That, question 137 who founded it? It was founded by Christ. That church which was founded by Christ, this is it. He didn't found churches. And when we talk about Peter going to the church at Antioch, this is not like, you know, Second United Methodist down the street. (laughs) This is the Catholic Church and its presence 
at Antioch. And so he's the bishop there, and he's, he's opening access to the people of Antioch, to the Catholic Church, him presiding as bishop there. And then when he would move, uh, Avodius would finally come in and take over as the next bishop because you still need to offer sacraments. All these things need to still be there to do the sacrifice and to have that authority that the people can turn to so that they can abide by all the commandments that Christ gave. Seems pretty straightforward. When I'm looking at it now through this lens, but man, it's been an interesting road to transition to this point, to sit there and logically be able to break out not only the Gospels and the New Testament, but the Old Testament and see it all as one contiguous piece, which cannot be separated from Catholicism. Like the Catholic Church is it. And it's universal because it is the church, the only church. And that term, by the way, as we keep talking about Catholic Church, and I, I know we don't really mention it uh, in the Catechism, that comes from the third bishop at Antioch who would follow Evodius. This is Ignatius of Antioch. So this is a man who was ordained a priest by John the Evangelist. So the most beloved of Jesus Christ, in terms of the most beloved apostle of Jesus Christ, he would ordain Ignatius of Antioch to become a bishop who would take over the third at Antioch, uh, ultimately then would be present when I, wasn't it, was it Tiberius again? I cannot remember who was the emperor. Yeah. It wasn't Tiberius. Uh, I need to look it up. Yeah. But basically the emperor is returning from a uh, uh, Trajan. So he's re when the emperor is returning from a uh, battle to the east or something along these lines, he comes back and he orders everyone to celebrate his victories and says, you're all going to start sacrificing to the gods. And Ignatius speaks up and says, I won't. I won't do that. And I know the last lesson we just talked about martyrdom and what it means to not offend God and why virtue is key. Ignatius stands up and represents that when he's like, no, I can't do that. and I won't. And he gets the one chance. He's like, hey, uh, you need to sacrifice to the gods. Otherwise, that's it. And Ignatius, no, I won't. So then he gets sentenced to death. And so he actually has to uh, walk back with his Roman guards from Antioch all the way to Rome to get put into the Colosseum to be eaten and martyred by lions. Being a member of this church is a serious thing. So moving back from the digressions into question 138, why did Jesus Christ found the church? Jesus Christ founded the church to bring all men to eternal salvation. This kicks off all the, the hard dogmas later. Yes. If, if he comes to earth, incarnates, God comes to earth, suffers, teaches, dies for your sins, uh, then ultimately says, no, nah, it's cool. Uh, there are many paths to salvation, many paths to the same center. Uh, we can all differ on these doctrines. We can differ on, on theology. It, it falls apart pretty quickly. And uh, that was one of the harder things as a Protestant, ex-Protestant, that I had to get over. But uh, the church is also the center, and I think the first step to tradition um, all things that tie us back to our, our fathers, our spiritual fathers, um, our ancestors, it, it all resides there in the magisterium and in tradition. And I would think this is really good point. When we're going to combine the fact that salvation and the Catholic Church are the points with this question here, this is why the phrase extra ecclesiam nulla salus exists. <laughs> and this is where we're actually looking at Outside of the church, there is no salvation. This is a huge arguing point for Protestants. This is also an arguing point for anyone who isn't even Christian, who's sitting there wondering, well, how can I end up in the good side of the afterlife? Well, newsflash, there's only one way. It's through Christ. And Christ being all truth and not contradicting himself and not liking error says, you better do everything I said, which means in the end, there's only one way. It's the universal way, Catholic and so that's why it all comes together. But there is no salvation outside the church. There are, I will link the catechism of the Catholic church where that actually comes out of. And I don't remember, I, I want to say it was like Cyril of Jerusalem or uh, of Carthage. It was one of those guys that actually had, had covered this exact topic first. It's a very early on topic. That there is no salvation outside the church. Yeah, so very shallowly, um, even back to the catechism of Pope Pius X, St. Pope Pius X, uh, the Baltimore Catechism, uh, you, you must be attached to the church by some way, some baptism, whether it be water, you know, blood, desire. There has to be an active uh, acceptance on your end 
to attach yourself to the church, which is the ordinary means of salvation that Christ gave all human beings, past, present, and future. There we go. Cyprian of Carthage. Okay. So Cyprian of Carthage is the first one to write about it. And Cyprian is in the 200s, I believe. Let's see. And it looks like Origen may have also referred to it as well. So there's a bunch of different pieces here uh, where we talk about it. And I think it looks like Justin Martyr may have also addressed it. So I'll make sure to link it onto the the, uh, description page. But this is a very early philosophy that Christ gave. And we have to remember that Christ gave this to the apostles. So we have said a little bit here and there about the fact that Paul, when he wrote to the church at Thessalonica, tells them that you're going to do everything. Basically, if you're Christian, you want to be obedient. You're going to do everything that we told you to do via written letter or by word of mouth. There also is John's last verse of the gospel where he says, Jesus does so many things. We had no way we could write them all down. When you combine those two statements, you get to this realization that the Bible in and of itself, one, is not an authority. It is an effect of authority. It is a result of authority. And that ultimately it is Christ who has the ultimate authority, God who has the ultimate authority. He creates this church, which now has derived authority. And then he starts referring people back to this derived authority of his church if they want to to figure out what the truth is or what's right, what's wrong, how to go the right direction, whatever. The Bible comes out of that. Well, when we add in all of these extra details, you start to see that the only way that this all come this all can be followed forever and not get corrupted by any changes in language or any changes in culture is you have to see that there has to be some consistency. Uh, apostolic tradition is when he spoke to the apostles and those apostles spoke to other people, just like you're seeing with Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica. Um, it's all about following what they told us to do. This is the authority of the church. You can see it as early as uh, Clement's letter to the Corinthians. Yeah, 95 AD, about the same time that John the Evangelist is writing his revelation, the book of Revelation. So uh, just to clarify, what we're saying is, is Scripture absolutely has authority. It is authoritative. It is, it is completely inspired and true uh, from the Holy Spirit. But the only reason why we know that is because the church says so. The church has ruled so and promulgated it. And that's where uh, St. Augustine actually says that directly. I don't believe the Catholic Church because of the gospel. I believe the gospel because of the Catholic Church. Yeah, if you so. haven't picked <laughs> up on it out there, uh, you know, the fathers is, is what broke me uh, completely. By the time I got back to the church fathers, uh, there's not much in the way of heresy that, that can withstand you know, a scrutiny of the church fathers. Me as well. That Whenever I started looking in that general direction and seeing these guys like Clement mentioned in Scripture— and then shown now as the fourth bishop of Rome to start correcting the church at Corinth. Because his letter that, that Brian mentions, it's an authoritative letter. It's direct. It's, you will do what we commanded you to do. <laughs> Not like a, hey, hey guys, you think maybe you could? No. Like, Stick with your bishop. <laughs> yeah. It was, like, it was very directive. And the letters that are coming from these early bishops are all in that vein. None of them are wishy-washy. None of them are trying to turn it in a way where you, I don't know if you really, you sure that's what he meant? Because we're going to vote on it. And and to the point where then going back to uh, Ignatius of Antioch, who first writes about the Catholic Church around 110, and I, I started to go down that road and I didn't finish that comment, but Catholic Church, Catholic, universal, Ignatius of Antioch writes about it in his letter to the church at Smyrna, where another bishop was residing, Polycarp, who was also appointed uh, ordained and then ultimately appointed by John the Evangelist, he, in his letter to the Romans, actually acknowledges the fact that they are second to no one, that people have to follow what the church in Rome says to do. So anyone who starts arguing, especially on the Eastern Orthodox side or the Protestant side, who says, well, there's no authority in Rome, there's no pope. Well, that's really odd because writing as early as 110, they're acknowledging the authority of the Pope, both from Ignatius' standpoint and from Clement's. Clement as the director, as the Pope, and from the uh, other side, Ignatius of Antioch, as he's writing to Rome. In submission, this is as a bishop of one of the five patriarchies that are mentioned by the Eastern Orthodox all the time. Which gets awkward because Ignatius, right, Ignatius of Antioch was uh, uh, taught, discipled. 
right? To John. John. So yes. if you have a living apostle who teaches a guy uh, and that guy's wrong, well, there's no hope for any of us, really, truly. Yes. Or perhaps John knew what he was talking about and was all actually submissive to Peter until Peter died and probably was submissive then to all of the remaining popes until he died. Newsflash. Then he surprisingly or not surprisingly teaches this authority to Polycarp and Ignatius, whom he is involved in ordaining and getting appointed in their own uh, diocese. Then further, because we haven't touched on him yet, but this is a good time to bring him into it as well. Polycarp instructs another bishop who happens to show up in Lyon. So Irenaeus of Lyon then goes on even further and actually outlines the authority of the church, how they have the authority to interpret scripture because it was their scripture, and then actually accounts for the first popes all the way to his time. So from Peter onward, he actually details them all. And if anyone's looking, I'm going to put it in the links in the description section, but book three of Against Heresies, it covers all this stuff. But I think all of that context is really helpful to bring into focus here. Like Jesus did not create a church for no purpose. He created it for our salvation. This should lead us to that point of going, that means the church absolutely is necessary for salvation. There's no way to get out of this. So Jesus and his church are together, almost like they're wedded. Could you say? Uh, yeah, I think I heard that teaching before, right? Yeah. So when we get to Revelation and we get to the analogies, so the, the parables that Jesus is giving, he has a handful of them talking about a bridegroom and talking about the maidens who are waiting for the bridegroom. And when you look at how John the Evangelist writes in Apocalypse regarding the end, he talks about the bridegroom finally coming and the bride being the church. And Paul uses the exact same terminology. Whoa, crazy. Almost like these guys are all working together with the same philosophy, right? So Ephesians 5, 22 to 33 is where Paul goes into talking about the church as the faithful and loyal bride of Christ that never deviates from his side. So it is perfect. It is immaculate. And this is why he tells Timothy confidently in 1 Timothy 3.15 that the church is where truth resides. So we can always have faith in that. He can say this because the church in and of itself has to be what Christ said it would be. And he was going to protect it when he put Peter over the top of it and all the successors and all the bishops. And even though you can have clergy that fail, first and foremost, Judas, you can fail. We can have bishops who go way far away and break everything. Failed bishops do not mean failed church. Failed bishops do not mean failed theology. Failed bishops do not mean failed God. They're just failed men. Yeah, just don't conflate people with the holy faith. And when you can do that, the rest of these questions that we're going to go over in this lesson make total sense. Because you can look at then this perfect bride of Christ, as the scripture talks about how, so we'll go to 139, question 139. How is the church enabled to lead men to salvation? The church is enabled to lead men to salvation by the indwelling of the Holy Ghost who gives it life. So now, not only do we have this bride of Christ, this immaculate bride of Christ, holding on to that deposit of truth, the deposit of the faith that allows us all to make sure we can confidently do what Christ commands. Well, how can we be sure it's there? Because the Holy Ghost is living in it. So the Holy Ghost is not living in every single denomination of Christianity. That is not true. People may feel a Holy Ghost. Sure. But no, can you tell me, Brian, whether you can confidently say that this Holy Ghost is not a feeling Versus yeah. and just some weird inclination in their head or something worse. There's no presumption on my end. I, I'm far too aged for that sort of thing. But the uh, I, I guess this is a good time to bring up the attachment again of baptism. Some some sects, some denominations uh, do have a valid baptism, which the church does recognize. But that that of course is the the inclusivity part where okay now you have you're filled with the Holy Ghost, your sins are forgiven, you you've been validly baptized. But then the second you uh, commit a grave sin or reject uh, an infallible truth of Holy Mother Church or uh, its Supreme Pontiff or any any of the litany of things that Protestants are, are guilty of, uh, you're no longer attached to it, right? But then there's the invincible ignorance piece, which I'm sure we'll get to at some point, which, like I said, ordinary means of salvation. Christ came down to earth, founded the church. Uh, that's what we're primarily focused on. But to be included in it, uh, that's the gateway, right? Baptism and... Yeah, it's the mass and the sacraments. And so as long as we're there, then we have a way to get to that grace, to be with 
God to help offer the Son to the Father and then share in that eternal reward as long as we completely submit ourselves to it. And the Holy Ghost is a part of that. But the Holy Ghost is not a feeling. The Holy Ghost is not an inspiration. Going back to everything that Jake would say if he were here, he'd sit there and do this whole, he's not our buddy. The Holy Ghost is there with a specific purpose to empower us to possess the truth without contradiction, to continue to spread that to whoever requires it so that we can bring more souls into the church for the glory of God. That's what's going on here. And when did that all start to take place? Well, question 140, when was the dwelling of the Holy Ghost in the church first visibly manifested? The dwelling of the Holy Ghost in the church was first visibly manifested on Pentecost Sunday when he came down upon the apostles in the form of the tongues of fire. So the Holy Ghost is shown, I think we said this in one of the earlier episodes, uh, fire, a dove is how he's often Mm. depicted. So he's the third person of the Trinity. He shares will with the others, the other persons, So, but still has a unique role and was essential in preserving, I guess we'll go with, in starting the church and also is essential in preserving that truth and spreading the truth. Which protects the, the Holy Church from error, official, inofficial teachings, um, which could be confusing. As a Protestant, it took me a while to kind of wrap my brain around the fact that the Pope is not infallible 24-7. He, it's too. under a very narrow set of circumstances that the Holy Ghost does protect the church. But also with tongues of fire, uh, they weren't speaking gibberish outside. It's a very, uh, very clear, concise exchange of language. Yeah, think of the smartest person you've ever heard speak that had the most compelling set of arguments that you've ever heard made with the exact level of vocabulary and understanding that you have to make sure it all made sense. If a Catholic, a Christian were speaking in tongues, that's what they would sound like. And you would clearly get every single message that Christ ever gave to you. That's what tongues are. In your native language, despite the fact they may be speaking in a different one. You wouldn't even know. You So the whole thing is, is this guy who spoke in tongues from God, you wouldn't have any idea other than you'd be like, wow, that guy sounds really smart. That, that's all you get. So... Can people speak in tongues? Sure. However, do most people speak in actual legitimate tongues from God? No. 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 <laughs> it's a very, very, very rare miracle, a very, very, very rare gift. Pentecostals don't have it. Newsflash. All right? So whatever the heck is going on in those buildings where everyone's just saying all sorts of gibberish nonsense. It's baby a spirit. Talk, it, yeah, <laughs> it could be a spirit. It's either A, it's actual people just being completely prideful and trying to fit in. Or B, if something is actually helping them out, it is not the Holy Ghost. This is my whole thing about being inspired. I'm going to put air quotes again, inspired by the Holy Ghost. People can be inspired by things. The problem is, is that angels won't do it without authority from God. God won't give it if they're outside the Catholic Church. And then the Holy Ghost isn't going to give it if they're outside the, the Catholic Church, unless it's to come in and submit to the Catholic Church. So if it's anything else, and they're being inspired by the Holy Ghost, in quotes, to do anything that's not Catholic, it is either their own pride or it is a demon. There is nothing in the middle there. Yeah. Sorry. That's, that's just the way it is. It's easy math. And this was hard for me to actually understand that. And I think by the time I could finally separate men from the church and understand that men can go all manner of different ways, but if they veer away from the church, who has to be in union with God, there's only two paths here. You are either with the church on the ark. That's the the um, metaphor that's used often is the ark, Noah's ark in the water is that we are out there. And I think Steve Ray is a really good one. He talks about this. Is yeah. He uses Noah's ark and says the, the church is the ark. The problem is, is then you have all these Protestant splinters, which is effectively what they did. They cut chunks of the ark off and they're now sitting there in the middle of the ocean. He's floating along. Floating along this is like, fine. <laughs> this is fine. <laughs> We're the church, even though what's that big thing over there? Don't look at that thing over there. That's yeah. not, they're all, they're wrong. No, th- we have to look at the, the holistic piece here is that the church is a unified body. The Holy Ghost preserves that truth of the Immaculate Bride of Christ. This is unity. You cannot separate the Holy Ghost from the rest of the Trinity or the Gospels or the Catholic Church and say that truth still exists. Just like we can't separate the Catholic Church from the Trinity and say that the truth still exists. That's that's just not how this works. So when we move beyond Pentecost, 
We move into question 141. How long will the Holy Ghost dwell in the church? The Holy Ghost will dwell in the church until the end of time. This is the second judgment. I'm going to bring it up here because I, it'll happen. Someone's going to ask. Someone's going to do that whole thing. They're going to start talking about, uh, was it taken? I'm, I'm trying to think of what's the, what's the, those stories. You know what I'm talking about? It was a whole set of novels, right? Um, yeah. I know. Dang. See, we don't read any of the apocalyptic stuff that Protestants write because it's usually really nonsensical and crazy. And so when... So it's the Rapture series, right? It is the Rapture series. Okay. And the problem is, is that... Left he, Behind. Left Behind. There, there we go. Is. So Left Behind, uh, it's fiction. So, I mean, as long as you're looking at it as fiction, I guess know what you're getting into, um, but it's not right. Because when Jesus actually talks about this, I'm going to put in quotes, rapture, this taking, he compares it not to what they're doing in those weird books and saying that the good people get taken away. Jesus actually says the opposite. So specifically, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, he references the flood. Who got taken away in the flood? And who got left? <laughs> that's quite the inverse. Mm. So that's really weird. You have a book series that is actually written, that's supposedly Christian, that's supposedly helping guide people towards Christ, but it's giving them the exact opposite message that Christ gave in the Gospel of Matthew. This should cause a little bit of the red flags, warning signs, you know, alarm bells to come up for people because that's not good. This is not a place to be. So the Holy Ghost is going to sit here until Christ returns at the end. Christ is not, there's no, the thousand year reign of Christ, it's a metaphorical thing, at least in terms of the way the church fathers talk about it. A lot of this apocalyptic stuff, if you want to know what the church fathers thought, you have to read uh, Hippolytus was one of the first to write it. He's a pope around 215. He actually is really cool. There, um, He has the first detailed accounting of the ordination rite of priests. Really cool. And he ends up getting martyred at the same time another pope while they were competing over who was actually pope. And they both get martyred. And then the next pope after is like, you know what? We'll just call it all even. <laughs> it was really rough. Y'all died for the faith. You're okay. But Hippolytus writes about revelation apocalypse what john's talking about and what it all means because they're basically putting it all to these are what the signs mean this is what's going to happen this thousand year reign of christ it's the metaphorical thing of yes at the very end he reigns forever great but what we're looking at right now from the standpoint of what would be expected whenever the end finally arrives a whole bunch of the signs come and ultimately what we're waiting for is a series of events that lead up to Antichrist at the end, who reigns for three and a half years, is what they've estimated. Robert Bellarmine expands on Hippolytus's work, and then Christ returns. When Christ returns, well, guess what? That means all the sinners get taken, raptured, gone, and then the end state is who's left on earth. It's like, depart from me, right? Yes, depart from me, and then basically sends them into the lake of fire, and then the earth is reborn in fire, and then everyone dwells on earth, the new Jerusalem, the new Sion. So it's a change at that point is when the Holy Ghost, he can just be there. So the church, the purpose was to get all the souls that they wanted to fill up all the ranks that they had envisioned in their perfect hierarchy. The heavenly eternal hierarchy has been filled at that point, And then it all ends. And that's when that transition takes place. But that that's the second coming. Christ will return on his horse, as Revelation says, I believe what fire coming out of his eyes and mouth. Yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty dope illustration. At, at the head of the <laughs> heavenly host, it's an amazing thing when it finally happens. But yes, that's when the Holy Ghost is not necessarily needed in the church anymore in the same capacity as before, because everything will now become manifested. All the remaining beings, so the remaining humans and angels who God has collected and put onto his right, his lambs, there isn't going to be any fight anymore over the doctrines. No, we're completely submitted. We're, we're 100% all in to worship him forever. And you get to participate in the longest, most beautiful, most fulfilling and happy mass you could ever imagine that goes on forever and never stops. Yeah. So if it's you're bored of mass right now, you may be disappointed later. Heaven could be rough for you because yeah. the whole thing is, is glory to God and continual contemplation and communication with God to talk through why he did what he did, why it is so beautiful, why he is so awesome, what infinity is like. And knowing that throughout all of time and infinity, you'll never actually understand the fullness of the God that created us or why all this happened the way it happened. But the whole time growing in love, growing in awe, joy, joy. just closer yeah. to everyone who actually made it.
big picture. If you guys got questions or criticisms, absolutely throw them at us. We'll be happy to answer. Question 142, who sent the Holy Ghost to dwell in the church? God the Father and God the Son sent the Holy Ghost to dwell in the church. Now, I don't have handy the, the verses that actually talk about this because this has been addressed by some of the church doctors, I believe it is, to actually explain why they can say that, that the Father and the Son sent the Holy Ghost because they're, they're sharing in their will. You may know more because you're looking at the Eastern yeah, side. I, so the more I look into both, uh, just to kind of sum it up very briefly, the Eastern, I think the, the more linguistic explanation is, is Father through the Son which is completely acceptable. It's completely, we we are fine with that as Latins. Uh, I think the Latin translation went from father and son, you know, with the filioque, but it's really, I think personally, it's, it's one of the same thing that just kind of got out of hand in, in various ways, both political and uh, theological, um, almost personal, if you will. <laughs> so with some, some explanations, but it really comes, I think, down Yay, to the, it's, it's, so everything is, is generated or the spiration is through the father, right? But Christ is completely one with the father. Right. Therefore he's given that as well. It really, it's a six in one hand, half dozen in the other, as far as I'm concerned. But either way, the unity in the Trinity still exists. The son and the father share will because that's what Christ committed to have happen. That's God in his divinity is not going to conflict with himself. Father and son send the Holy ghost to dwell in the church. Just as a kind of a shout out, uh, if anyone's super interested in uh, some real depth uh, on this particular topic, uh, check out Brother Andre Marie. Google his name, find his uh, YouTube and his page. He's got a ton of great stuff on it. Yeah, and the caveat there, I know people will get weird because of the, the whole Feniite thing. Yeah, not them. That, that was a, a split. Yeah, it's, well, and even then, there's, there's a bunch of weirdness there because the only reason that some of them were excommunicated was over the issue with Feni. Uh, not reporting to Rome, and there was a handful of other stuff. It didn't actually have to do with his doctrines. The doctrines that were there in terms of no salvation outside the church, the original stuff was actually not actually in contradiction at all no, just with church theology. theology. So just as a heads up. Um, question 143, what does the indwelling of the Holy Ghost enable the church to do? The indwelling of the Holy Ghost enables the church to teach, to sanctify, and to rule the faithful in the name of Christ. So, Anyone who's in line with the Holy Ghost will continue to promote the authority of the one true, holy, Catholic, Catholic and apostolic church. That, that's it. Like anyone who contradicts that starts to walk away from the apostles. Anyone who contradicts that walks away from the mystical body of Christ. Anyone who contradicts that walks away from the sacraments. Anyone who contradicts that walks away from the sacrifice of the mass. This means as we start to leave pieces of this behind, we're now shattering the truth. The instant you shatter truth, you can no longer guarantee whether or not you're going to be in the good graces of God anymore. Now you're walking into the darkness, out of the light. Like, again, leaving the ark, going off into the water, paddling around with a little shard of wood or whatever you're floating on. That's not really the safest place to be, I don't think. Like a child, like, who would run away from such a... Like, it's all pride at that point. You want something that you're not getting in your mind. And the church has some hard truths. Uh, I won't even begin to tell you differently. But the submission, the humility you need to to, to really just overcome yourself. And uh, instead of ripping off your little plank, jumping in, paddling away, mm -hmm. no, I'm fine over here, you're just going to drown. It's just how it goes. Well, and this goes back to the previous lesson. As opposed to doing that and leaving virtue, whenever we see we have a problem, and this is where I would say Brian and I can both attest to this, um, the only way we could come into the church, become Catholic, convert, and accept these truths is we had to commit ourselves to believing it and commit ourselves to the humble truth that we're wrong. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah that, was a, that was a big thing. <laughs> yeah. And after you've admitted that I'm wrong, I don't know, so I teach me, let me come into the truth, then you can work through all these issues because I know when I first came in, I had problems with the Pope and that whole infallibility thing. I'm yep. like, yeah, there's no way the Pope's right all the time. True. The Dude. Pope is not right all the time. As a matter of <laughs> fact, there's been some terrible ones. Yep. And not understanding confession mm -hmm. and now knowing more about it. And like, yeah, if you want to see something interesting, by the way, look at how many times public confession is mentioned in the gospels. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> 
it, every time he's like, the only way you're going to be forgiven of sins is you have to mention in public. So by the way, why do Catholics say you have to go to confession? Because unless you actually confess your sins to some other human being living around you, not just Christ, there's no way he actually listens because there was no humility involved in the actual expression of your contrition when it comes to at least mortal sins. So just as a heads up. Um, I know we're all things ancient and church fathers, but I really appreciate the modern spin on private confession right now. Yeah, thank you, St. Patrick, for that, <laughs> yeah. by the way. He actually made sure we could do it like just directly one-on-one with a priest and not have to tell the entire parish. So that's that's pretty good. It yeah. works out. Yeah, we're not, we're not Still all counts. against progressives here. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on then. Uh, let's see. Let me see if we got... Is there anything else on question 143 in terms of sanctification and ruling of the faithful? But I guess it goes back to the humble, the humility thing. With humility, we can accept the fact that I don't have enough in me to sanctify myself. I can also accept in me that I don't know enough to experience the fullness of Christ, nor do I possess enough to experience the fullness of Christ. I need the sacraments. I need the church. I need the mass. I need someone else to offer it. And in the end, I'm not in charge of the offering of that mass. I mean, you don't even have to like the minimum of all that. That's that's the that's the outcome, the net outcome is that realization. But minimally, if you're just starting, just ascend maybe to the idea that there is a possibility that you don't know everything. And that's it's a great first step into uh, in discerning this and, and looking at yourself and actually uh, diagnosing your defects, your primary defects and your gaps. Um, so this isn't all done overnight, but just maybe the idea of the truth of, I don't know, everything is a great first start in my opinion. It definitely helps along the way. And that's how you can accept the rule of the clergy. And then again, going back to St. Peter and St. Paul, we obey our masters even when they're bad. Now that comes up to a point. We don't obey them into heresy. We don't obey them into apostasy. Yeah. We don't play into the sin. No, but everything else where it's just an annoyance of, well, Father won't do Masses when I like it. Okay, tough. Submit. Yeah, Father will only do confessions at this time. Tough, just do it. Or Father's hard to do X, Y, and Z going with the priest. Or Bishop so-and-so said this today, and he was whatever. He didn't care about this other group of people. So what? Okay, these are all things we just get to put up with, but it's not a reason to buck the authority of the church. So not all of us can go be Martin Luther and John Calvin and Thomas Cranmer. So moving on to question 144, what is meant by teaching, sanctifying, and ruling in the name of Christ? By teaching, sanctifying, and ruling in the name of Christ, it is meant that the church always does the will of its divine founder who remains forever its invisible head. So this goes back to Ephesians 5:22 to 33. Read those verses because it talks about the obedient bride of Christ. These are the, basically the unsoiled, pure maidens that are married to the perfect bridegroom and christ so beloves his church that he gave himself on the cross for her even when her members blaspheme and do all sorts of terrible things to him so the best husband ever to the perfect vessel that is the church but we have an obligation to do what he commands the whole time so that we can still be unified with our mother the church his bride. I just think of the crucifixion scene. You got one guy sells him out, like first bishop, completely just apostatizes and sells him down the river. Ten run away, completely just head for the hills, and one sticks by him. Uh, that's basically my rule of thumb for looking at bishops today as well. Well, and again, uh, Peter denied him three times yep. and said, no, no, I, I don't know who you're talking about. Um, Thomas said, I won't believe the fact that he even rose from the dead unless I can mm. stick my hands in the wounds, for which he gets a rebuke for it. And then, to be perfectly honest, all the apostles join in to that naysaying whenever the holy women show up and they're like, he rose from the dead. They're like, nah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, girls. So, so our first bishops had a rough go. <laughs> so, <laughs> kind of set the tone for the rest of this, you know, the next 20 centuries. Yeah, we really shouldn't be surprised then when you have basically, because to be perfectly honest, John runs away at first and comes back. <laughs> so every single one of the bishops that he chose at the very beginning, all 12, 100% failed. Yeah. And then there was some redemption that happened after when John returns and, it, and goes all the way through the crucifixion with him. And then Peter returns and gets forgiven. Guys, like, let's not look for perfect clergy here. We have a perfect church. The clergy needs help. They need our prayers. But th- we should not expect that men will be the exemplar of perfection. We are not having faith in clergy. We have faith in God. 
and his church. It's a very immature outlook on adults. I mean, as a child, if, if you we try up, to sit there and hold this pope or hold this bishop or hold this priest up to a standard that's impossible, which is what Martin Luther did, which is what Protestantism does, which is honestly what Eastern Orthodoxy did with the pope as well. They all held these men up as if they were supposed to be Christ perfectly. And although that, yes, God is going to have to judge those men for their failings, that is not our choice to separate from the body, the mystical body of Christ and the vicar of Christ who's ruling in the stead of Christ until his return. We don't get to choose whether or not we're still in or not and still uh, avoid any consequence that comes with it. And to be fair, we've had some outstanding examples of prelates over the centuries. Uh, we've also had some real stinkers that, uh, well, there's a reason why they're called anti-popes. Um, there's a reason why we have schismatics and arch heretics and, and whatnot. So just don't conflate the holy faith and the pure divine truth of our Lord Jesus Christ with uh, a, a bunch of, inf- you know, fallible men, sinful men. This leads directly into question 145. To whom did Christ give the power to teach, to sanctify, and to rule the members of his church? Christ gave the power to teach, to sanctify, and to rule the members of his church to the apostles, the first bishops of the church. And we're going to go and we're going to add on to that because I think that uh, let's go all the way to 148 because we're going to hit just the apostles first before we go into St. Peter and the role of the, the Pope, the Supreme Pontiff. So question 146, did Christ intend that this power should be exercised by the apostles alone? No, Christ intended that this power should be exercised also by their successors, the bishops of the church. This is a contention point between us and Protestants because there are a group of Protestants out there who acknowledge the role that St. Peter played. They acknowledge the role then that the rest of the apostles played as the leaders of the church before they all passed away. The issue starts to arise when they try to make the case that these apostles lost their authority or did not pass on their authority when they died. And the problem is, if that was the case, then Christ is a liar. That's the whole thing that we have trouble with when it comes to Protestantism. It can't actually be true at the same time as Christ saying, I'm going to be with you to the end of time. Well, the only way he can be with us to the end of time to preserve us in the sacraments and in the mass and in worship and in the truth He's got to actually have people who are then tasked to spread on that that message. So to spread the Gospels and the way that we were supposed to hear them, the way we were supposed to understand them. Because even though, like we said, there are bad clergy, uh, we also said there are good clergy. Those good clergy, that's their job. They're supposed to do exactly what Timothy and Titus were tasked to do by Paul. Those letters, if you actually read Timothy and Titus, were instructional guides written by Paul from one bishop to two other bishops to explain to them this is what it means to actually carry on this faith. When you look at Paul talking to Timothy, specifically when he addresses the succession, he talks about the fact that Timothy needs to take care to appoint men who will appoint other men. <laughs> like, huh, look at that. This succession you start to see from the apostles on down, Paul being the last of the apostles and then spreading it to his children in the faith. This whole thing, don't call me father, Thing or whatever that that whole nonsensical protestant thing yeah. where i'm like what are you talking about like again he addresses them actually as his children so he says my children in faith timothy and titus mm-hmm. i believe he addresses philemon as a child of faith too i think he's a spiritual father and had there's a generation a procreative piece to this spiritually where you're creating the next generation of of men to go into this it, it is a spiritual fatherhood yeah and so and that's the and and a lot of these terms that we see too when we're talking the episcopate the presbytery, the uh, diaconate. These are all terms that are actually literally in the scripture from these letters. So, and uh, even, um, so diocese, we, I think the, the term they use is bishopric, mm-hmm. but that authority, that region that is controlled by the bishop is actually mentioned in the book of Acts, along with the ordination rites are also mentioned in the book of Acts. Um, I can't remember if Paul mentions them elsewhere, but I know in the book of Acts, so, and and remember, too, guys, is that when Luke wrote his gospel and he wrote the book of Acts, he did so as a, again, child of the faith of Paul. Paul was the one who brought him in and helped guide him. So Luke was a doctor before he converted. 
And then what he does is he then works with Paul to learn the faith and then writes down what he had learned from Paul's perspective. So when you read Luke's gospel, you're actually reading what amounts to Paul's gospel. It's what he knows of it and what he had heard. And then same with Acts, he's writing Paul's perspective on what happened with the apostles right after the uh, resurrection, death and resurrection of Christ. That's where he outlines the role of the diocese. He outlines the purpose of baptism. He outlines how to deal with heretics. He out, I mean, you, you go through all this stuff. You're seeing then the, the leadership of the church and how it all functions. And Luke as a second generation apostle in the same vein that Mark is a second gen. Um, Philemon, Titus, Timothy are all second gens. In the book of Philippians, you see Clement. So who Clement of Rome is actually mentioned there. Um, in uh, the book of Revelation, the angel of Smyrna that John refers to is his child of the faith, Polycarp of Smyrna, that he's actually addressing in his letter to make sure that he picks up and says, you need to follow these rules. Like uh, Ignatius is another one of those second gen ones. And we even know some of the third gen ones, at least Irenaeus of Lyon is another third gen apostle who we can trace all the way back to the originals. Like this set of authorities were there so they could actually teach so they could offer the sacraments and sanctify. They could offer the mass and sanctify. And then they could control and correct when errors would pop up. These guys needed to shut them down. That's why you see what happens with Clement in his letter to the Corinthians. Why you see Polycarp write his stuff. Why you see Ignatius write his. And why you see Irenaeus write an entire set of books against heresies specifically to quelch all of the errors that had already popped up in the 100s. He's already like, no, false, 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 false. He was already hitting the first of the Protestants that were actually cropping up to actually start to resist the Catholic Church, the Catholic authority, the authority of the apostles, and ultimately the, the bride of Christ. So it all makes a lot of sense. And in the end, it's the bishops, those successors to the apostles, who are keeping everything in order. Question 147, did Christ give special power in his church to any one of the apostles? Yes, Christ gave special power in his church to St. Peter by making him the head of the apostles and the chief teacher and ruler of the entire church. So this one is hard for Orthodox, so the Eastern Orthodox. This is hard for Protestants because even though some of them acknowledge, well, yeah, of course, yeah, Peter was there. And of course, Peter gets mentioned. And of course, Peter shows this exceptional faith. But there are so many things that Christ does for Peter alone, which we really should be looking going, why would he do that? <laughs> why why wouldn't we go through all the, the Gospels? Is Peter mentioned, what is it, twice as many times as all the rest of them combined? Yeah. And then when the next one closest, I believe, is John, who's only mentioned like a quarter of the times that Peter's mentioned, something like that. So uh, this is this pause for logic here for a second. So if you're a Protestant, and you're realizing, well, I mean, of course, Peter was the fair. He's in charge. You know, it's you're acknowledging all these things. But the second Peter dies, goes to heaven, then we're just cool. We don't need leadership. We we don't need follow through. Yeah. Why did we need leadership under Peter from 33 A.D. to his death sometime around they think 67 A.D. Yeah. Why did we need 34 years of leadership or 33 years of leadership? And then after that, like, eh, yeah, we're cool. We're good. We don't need any more. Yeah. For, the, for the next however long it takes until Christ returns, no leadership is necessary, even though that first 30-some years, maybe it was because we didn't have the Bible then. Well, it was clearly, that yeah. I but, mean, they, someone needed to talk because the Bible doesn't show up to like, the 300s anyway. So I guess that helped. But You apply it to like a regular a secular form, like after Washington. Do we really need Adams? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> That's right. I, I think every kingdom you've ever seen, you only needed one king at first, and then the subjects yeah. ruled themselves. Hey, PM, constitution only. <laughs> <laughs> so the constitution. Yeah. So... The reason we're going and being absurd like this is sitting there trying to make the point is that what Luther did is Luther got angry about the fact that the Pope was telling him things, that the church was telling him things, that the bishops were telling him things that he didn't like. Luther was a failed monk who only lasted a year in seminary before he was basically pushed forward. And then he rejects the rest of the teachings he could have ultimately taken as an Augustinian monk. He is a failed Augustinian monk who broke his own vows and then encouraged other people to break their vows and then starts writing on this stuff with an insane amount of confidence based on his inspiration, wherever it came from, to make a whole bunch of proclamations that people no longer need these apostles. They no longer need the bishops. They no longer need that perfect bride of Christ. They no longer need the truth because they can get it themselves. So everything starts to go all 
haywire on itself. He starts to come up with scripture alone. You're talking to a world that can't even read. He says, you have to have this book. <laughs> like, how messed up is that? So a whole bunch of things start to go wrong whenever you leave. The, the key here is sticking close to the church. How do you stick close to the church? You have to follow her prelates. That's what Paul tells us. Obey your prelates. You can't obey your prelates if you're going to start arguing that they don't have authority. And when Peter is put in his place, leading the apostles, we have to acknowledge that maintains even until now. So the verse that they reference is Acts 2.14, when Peter actually leads the apostles and speaking to them. And I believe right after that is when they actually choose the replacement for Judas. He leads that discussion and it happens. And I know there are other people out there who talk about the uh, was it the Council of Jerusalem and the fact that St. James leads it or whatever, but it's not like Peter wouldn't have been present or known or that he had to. We've had synods in the past where the Pope has afterwards signed off on it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this happens. There's precedence. So, so Peter is the head of the church. And so when we go into question 148, did Christ intend that the special power of the chief teacher and ruler of the entire church should be exercised by St. Peter alone? Answer, Christ did not intend that the special power of the chief teacher and ruler of the entire church should be exercised by St. Peter alone, but intended that this power should be passed to his successor, the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, who is the vicar of Christ on earth and the visible head of the church. Now, this is another takeaway that we want to, to focus on is that the church is visible just as much as Christ is visible. So, yes, uh, a man, based on God's image, especially if we look at Christ as the image, is body and soul. So yes, there is an invisible part of what a human is. There is an invisible part of Jesus Christ. Because to be perfectly honest, even his divinity, he hid quite often while he walked on the earth. But his flesh, his physical body, was visible. In the same vein, when Paul starts talking, I think it's in Colossians, about the mystical body of Christ, it's visible. So this mystical body of Christ of which we are all members, has to be visible. This cannot be this weird, nebulous, metaphorical, well, I mean, the church is just a bunch of people who happen to meet whatever, and they don't have to agree and a whole bunch of other concerning things that, that Protestantism tries to put forward. But no, the church is a visible institution with a set of laws that align to the commandments of God, that is in complete union with God. Otherwise, there's no point for any of this. No, and I think the only reason why Protestantism does that is to soothe their own wounds of insecurity. And I mean, deep down, they they know there's something not right about their situation, especially with the the fragmented nature of their belief system, because it really is just a conglomeration of just nonsense that contradicts each other. And they also see a consistency too. Because I know I that's the thing. I can honestly say, as a Protestant, uh, when I was there, looking back, you could see a consistency in the church, and you couldn't put your finger on it. Yeah. Like you knew you're like, well, I mean, it's the Pope and you had a reverence for, in my case, it would have been John Paul II. You're like, yeah, you just, yeah he's in charge. You recognized it. As and you're the like, truth. there's an authority there. There's a body there. There's a permanence there. There's this power and you don't understand it. So you have some, but the problem is, is you see it as this weird coexisting. Well, of course they can coexist with my belief system and everything's all good. Even though my whole belief system came out of denigrating that office and denigrating that authority and saying that that body actually shouldn't have been here at all and actually causes problems for everyone. (laughs) Like, Which is funny because the only uniting principle behind Protestantism is that the Catholics are wrong. (laughs) we don't agree on anything else together but we all agree the catholics that's true because between unitarians and and the rest of them that's the trinity even like low high anglicanism right it's yes they're all arguing over everything here and there and in terms of whether they do vestments and how they do their worships should they be on saturday or sunday should they do like full water baptisms or not and all the other questions that they're throwing out there like baptizing baptizing kids and whatever else or you know what? Hey, but I mean, we're cool with like, we all hate the Pope, right? We all realize that guy's bad. The church? No, they're all wrong. Fist bump, fist bump. <laughs> it's it's weird when you actually just step back for a minute. Like, why is the only thing they agree on that? Because they, they actually don't even necessarily agree on how to terminate, like the terminology surrounding God and how they talk about God either. God's name. You have the YHWH yep. and the Jehovah and like You don't Yahweh have to be Columbo to and, figure the central principle here. <laughs> yeah. And like so the, all this other stuff is like, what are you guys doing? Like in the end, like he said his name's I am. 
He said his name is Jesus. Yesu, however you want to play Jesus, but that's it. Like, oh, yeah. come on, people. So it's something to look at. But going back to the questions here, who assists the bishops in the care of souls? Priests, especially parish priests, assist the bishops in the care of souls. Now, a bishop is a priest. So the difference is, is that the bishop is a priest with authority who's in the line of succession from the apostles. That apostolic succession is what actually, where we can see the visible truth to know that the Catholic Church is the authority and that all of those people who are working together in concert with the bishop are now in an apostolic faith and promoting the truth of Christ. Who are the laity of the church? This is uh, question 150. The laity of the church are all its members who do not belong to the clerical or to the religious state. So this is like Brian and myself, a bunch of you guys out there listening. This is all of the people who have not received holy orders. Like where we have not taken vows to move out of the, the lay state where right now our job, first and foremost to glorify God, is to have a family bigger the better because these are all souls of gods we're only stewards here but then to raise them to nourish them spiritually educate them in the faith help them to educate and bring the faith to others and work on the salvation of all of our souls that's our job as lay people so that's what we do in the mystical body of christ as lay members to receive the sacraments to practice the the faith living the faith day in day out 24 7 Go to Mass as many times as we can. That's what we do as lay people. So experience and take advantage of all the stuff that's being given to us by Christ through his church, through his Pope and the bishops, through the priests, directly into our you know souls. The vast majority of Catholics are lay people. Yeah, you're talking about the 1.2 billion or whatever of us. It's got to be 1.1.8 billion, something like that. Or 1.18, oh, 1.19 billion of them are lay people. So... And probably more than that, honestly, because right now the clergy, there are very few these days. That's that, a whole That'll topic. be a future episode. Yeah, that's another topic for another time. Um, question 151, how can the laity help the church in the care of her souls? So I, I talked about this a little bit, and I'll, uh, I'll give the answer and we'll, we'll uh, expand on it slightly. The laity can help the church in her care of souls by leading lives that will reflect credit on the church and by cooperating with their bishops and priests, especially through Catholic action. Now... This is an interesting one because it's been kind of hijacked with uh, the social justice warriors and the Susans from the parish council kind of thing. But as I just said, lay people have a responsibility to lead virtuous lives so that people would look at us and see Christ and how we act. So we're setting up our children and the rest of our family members and friends, our parishes, our diocese, so that we can actually glorify God in everything that we do. And when we follow our bishops and priests. We do not follow them into error. If they're going to say stuff that contradicts what the church fathers, so whether it's Cyprian of Carthage or whether it's Ignatius of Antioch or Clement of Rome or Peter Damian or St. Thomas Aquinas or whatever, if they said something that actually is accepted as magisterial, and this means it's truthful, this means it's on the authority of the church herself, this is something that the church pushes forward because God gave it to her, because Christ believes it, because he stated it himself in the flesh, lived it. And we're learning that today. And we hear some random Joe priest up there, Father Feelgood, say something that doesn't make any sense. Like, oh, no, it's okay. We're going to celebrate with the Jews in their Passover feast this year. You can just, just call them out. Pump the brakes right yeah. there. And you're like, no, I'm not going to go. And th this is not going to be the uh, Lord, hear our prayer moment. Just no, don't no, say that. Just don't say it. Because I was in a mass when they said yes, and we're now going to join our prayers to the sacrifice the Jews are making the Passover feast. And that one, just stay silent. Nope, I am not joining in to to celebrate apostasy that is mocking Christ as not divine. Number one is what they're doing, and then trying to tell God that no, I'm making you happy with this nonsensical like ugh, apostasy right there. It's gross. Yeah we, yeah, we don't break commandments to appease people's emotions. No. So if a priest or a bishop, even the pope, says something that's not in line with the actual magisterium of the church, the actual teachings of God, you don't have to go along with that. That is not Catholic action. Catholic action is promoting the magisterium, promoting the truth and the timeless teachings of the church, because just like God never changes, as he was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, you know, forever— by that same token, Catholic action must be in line with God. 
that timeless teaching. And in the end, God does not accept apostasy. God does not accept heresy. God only accepts the truth. So do that. And if a bishop doesn't go down that road, you can just let him go down there. You know, let him go the other way by himself. You have to go down the Catholic road. And in the end, your prayers, your commitments, your sacrifices, your masses, your sufferings through those moments where those bishops and priests aren't going to do what they're supposed to do is how you actually can merit better priests yeah, and this, better bishops. This really warrants its own like, special episode. It does. This this is echoing St. John Eudes in terms of we get the priests we deserve, we get the clergy we deserve. Well, by that same token... Um, we help the church by doing what the priests and bishops, the good priests and bishops ask, or like we said, they're just men by responding to the good requests of those bishops and priests. So it's hard work, takes time, takes patience, virtue, previous lesson, check it out. And, uh, we'll go from there. So let's, uh, expand a little bit more on Catholic action and active participation. So question 151a, what is Catholic action? Catholic action is the active participation of the laity and the apostolate of the church under the guidance of the hierarchy. So again, this is participating in mass. This is the prayers that we do in mass. Again, this does not mean I have to go and flail my hands and I have to shout and I have to hold people's hands and clap father, no clapping. I don't have to greet father out loud whenever he talks again. I, there's really should be nothing said between me and anyone else in that sanctuary because God is there. Catholic action means I worship God because that's what he deserves. Justice demands when I walk through those doors and that tabernacle is there and there's about to be a sacrifice to the mass, I prepare myself to receive it. And then when I leave that building, then I, ha- I am in fellowship with my Catholic friends and parishioners and family members with the intent of glorifying God through everything I do so that when people see me, I look like a Catholic. I look like Christ. And everyone's like, wow, how do you do that? How do you go and put a smile on your face when the world sucks? Because I'm Catholic. Because God's awesome. Because interiorly, the world can't affect you unless you let it. So in in a nutshell, if you're really just new to this, like don't flick your cigarette and come in right before the gospel and sit and space out for 25 minutes until the mass is over. Like that is really not the point. Or until you get communion and you leave early. Yeah, because you got to beat that parking lot traffic. You know, it's rough. Yeah, don't do that either. Stay to the end. Thank God because you received the sacraments. Things like that. That's Catholic action is that there's preparatory prayer knowing we're not worthy to receive what we're about ready to receive. We experience mentally and spiritually and physically the Eucharist. And then after that, after mass closes and everyone priest walks out, we stay afterwards in prayer and meditation to think about, wow, God is inside of me. God is trying to make me better and give me grace and think all the best ways we can actually apply that now to glorify him. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's Catholic action. So last question, question 151B, in what ways can the laity participate actively in the apostolate of the church? The laity can participate actively in the apostolate of the church when they arouse the interest of non-Catholics in the Catholic faith, promote high standards in the press, motion pictures, radio, and television, take part in the activities of Catholic societies and organizations, represent under the proper direction the church's position in speaking and writing, and go as lay missionaries to foreign lands. Now that is a super, super loaded answer. That's where our great-grandparents really got it right. I mean, they really held it to task for Hollywood standards in movies, television, you know, boycotts. To a point. To a point they did. They were very tough. The problem is is that the, the uh, I don't think it was universal. No, it wasn't. And the fight got bad enough, especially with the work of, we'll go with modernists. Everything that Pius X starts talking about in a Dominici Pacendi Gregis. Great, great encyclical, by the way. And the other one that goes along the same lines with what was being seen was Gregory the Sixteenth. Um, was it uh, Morari Vos? Um, those two encyclicals are amazing and saw what was coming and what was going to hit us. And, uh, and our great-grandparents, I think, were probably the best ones at preserving it as best they could, but they didn't see the onslaught that was about to take place. And so a bunch of changes happened in the 20th century that hit really hard and take all that stuff that we just talked about right there and started trying to split hairs and play a bunch of verbal gymnastics and mental gymnastics to work around actually having to be Catholic. Yeah, to be fair, it was lost under their watch, but at the same time, that was the last generation I think truly had a, a, a healthy fear and respect and trust 
and the clergy to do the right thing for them on their behalf as they lived lay lives. Because that's really what this is about, is for you to go out to your piece of the world, evangelize uh, even quietly in your workplace. You know, be the example, be the light in the darkness uh, at the grocery store, Walmart. I mean, you could probably do a ton of good just at Walmart alone. But the uh, just live your life authentically as a Catholic at all times and all places. People will wonder why you smile when things are bad. People will wonder why you do nice things when people do mean things to you before that. People will wonder why you do a sign of the cross before you eat. And yes. It's a great icebreaker if they have questions. Yep. And they'll wonder why you pray. They'll wonder why you genuflect. There's a handful of things that you do as a Catholic to show how much you revere our Lord and Savior and why you would continue to practice your faith regardless of whether or not you're at church on a Sunday. Those are all big signs that we should be uh, putting out there all the time so that people can know that we're Catholic and we're, we're in line with God and the Catholic Church. Now, I think on that note, we can close out. I will say on question 151B there, in terms of laity and active participation, if you guys want an episode on that where we just sit there and just talk specifically about active participation and all the weirdness that's happened in the, especially the 20th century to get us to this point where we are now and looking at just, again, Susan from the Parish Council and why that's funny at all. If you guys want us to talk down those roads and actually look at kind of how we got here, we're happy to go down and have those talks, especially in context with the church fathers, the doctors, and a bunch of those popes who led right up to it, who were watching the whole thing start to, to turn. Um, and know that the whole time, even though the laity and the clergy go off the reservation, the church herself is still immaculate. She has never left the side of Christ. And now it's a matter for us to turn back. This is where the Blessed Mother comes in and all those who didn't leave her have never left the truth. So it really Mary is the one responsible for, you know, keeping a lot of lay people in line and getting us back and closer and closer to God as we go. So thank you for listening to this episode. Um, and I say again, please subscribe to us on YouTube and make sure to follow us on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Please share these videos as you get the opportunity because it's the only way we actually get word out that we're doing this, trying to help do things that unfortunately we've seen too many priests and too many RCIA leaders not do for the laity. So any way we can get the word out and you guys can help us, we totally appreciate it. Ask questions, we'll answer whatever we can. And uh, thank you for listening. So as always, St. Joseph, pray, pray for, for us. us.